Good morning. Would you please stand with me as we read from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then, going over to the people who sold the doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. You may be seated. Thank you, Greg. How are we doing this morning? Good? Glad you're here. Thank you for coming to church today. I was just thinking, this has nothing to do with my message, but I was just thinking, uh, we were singing that last song uh, that, that I, I love, our worship team, but I was just thinking, uh, we were singing that song, There's Joy in the House of the Lord, and I was thinking about how grateful I am to be a part of a church uh, where that song is true. Now, that's not what the song's about. This, the song is about the fact that there should always be joy in the house of the Lord, and it's not the church's responsibility. That's your responsibility to bring the joy with you and all that stuff. That's fine. However, I'm glad that I'm a part of a church um, that I'm excited to come to, that I get in my car and I'm in a good mood. Anybody ever been to a church, you get in your car and you're in a bad mood? Anybody ever been to one of those? Except the kids workers. If you're, you get to do that if you're a kids worker, I guess. But, um, but I, this uh, last night, we, all, we got to bed a little bit late last night. And Nora, who is uh, our 10-year-old daughter, who is serving on the, the kids squad, the serve squad, uh, she came into my room. I was almost asleep. And she said, Dad, make sure you wake me up. I want to go with you. I said, I'm going early. You know, I'm leaving 7, 7.30. She's like, I want to go. And this morning, she heard me getting ready before I woke her up, hopped out of bed and said, don't leave, don't leave me, don't leave me. And I was just thinking, like, I'm so glad that I get to be a part of a church and my 10-year-old wants to meet me at the door and make sure she gets here. And I don't know if it's for Jesus, but we'll take it. You know what I mean? Come on, parents, you know what I'm talking about. Whatever it's for over there, I don't know, but we'll take it. Uh, Because it will be about Jesus, and hopefully it already is. But, you know, the, 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 the psalm says, um, I was glad when they said, let's go to the house of the Lord. And unfortunately, that's not always true. 
but I'm glad that I get to be a part where that's true and where my, you know, my kids want to go. And, um, and in order for that to be true, we always have to be evolving and, you know, cause kids are different ages and they grow. And, um, but I'm just glad that I get to be a part of a church like that. And that's not normal. And I hope you know, that's not normal. And that's not any shot at any other church. There's so many amazing churches around here. I don't mean that in any way other than, uh, there should be joy in the house of the Lord. And that's your responsibility, by the way. You got to bring the joy with you, okay? But it's also nice to be a part of a church where maybe that's facilitated as well. And so that has nothing to do with my message. I was just thinking about it. And, uh, and um, yeah, I love you. I'm glad we're here together, okay? Um, so I share a quote with you a lot around here um, over the years from A.W. Tozer. He famously said that what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. If you've been around long at all, you've heard me say that a lot. And what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And the reason that I share that quote so often is because in almost every situation we find ourselves, our idea of God comes into play. Our idea of God, everyone has an idea of God. When I say God, uh, you, you, you think of something, you think of something. Uh, depending on how you were raised, uh, you may think of, uh, of a certain type of church. You may think of a certain type of service or a certain type of spiritual leader. You may think of a religious school you were a part of. You may think of hurt. You may think of something negatively. You may think of a, uh, an event that happened in your life or whatever it is. But when I say God, everybody thinks about something. No one is, no one is completely blank on, on God. You think about something. And in every, almost every, probably every situation that we find ourselves in, that we live in, our idea of God comes into play. How we feel God feels about us has a profound effect on how we feel about ourselves. How, how we view life, how we anticipate life, whether we're optimistic or pessimistic, and whether we're faith-filled or whether we're cynical. Um, it's, it's, it's our view of life that is affected, and and, and how we respond to things that happen in our life, so much of it is affected by how we feel God feels about, about us. And I want you to think about that for a moment, that question. And I don't want you to say anything out loud. I just want you to think about it for a moment. How do you feel God feels about you at this moment? What do you think God feels uh, uh, about you? He loves you. I hope you know that. He loves you. But even that sometimes is hard to fully grasp or to, to, to feel. Um, a lot of us, you know, believe God loves us, but he doesn't like us, which is, you know, possible. You, you have family members like that. And, and so, um, you know, I, I don't know what that means to you, but I want you to just think about it for just a second. Yes, God loves you. And I hope that that's your answer. And I hope that you believe that and feel fully embraced by God and fully loved by God. I hope that's your answer. But I'm assuming it's probably not. So if you and God got five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, he's sitting in your car when you go out today or, you know, when you get home or whatever it is, and he says, hey, can we have a talk? What do you think he's going to bring up? What's the facial expression going to be on his face? What's the tone that he's going to talk to you with? How do you feel God feels about you? Mad? Disappointed? Happy? Proud? How, 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 do you, how do you think God feels about you? Now, the Bible tells us specifically how God feels about us. We don't have to guess. And it gives us very factual information. Sometimes it's hard for that factual information to go from our head to our heart. But the Bible calls us something very specific. This is kind of that Christian vocabulary 
that I want to use intentionally so that we can learn these words and what they mean. But the Bible says that we are the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. All right? That's a very important phrase for those of us who are Christians. We are the righteousness of God. And what that means is that that when God looks at us, he sees us as righteous or he sees us as right. In other words, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of what we celebrated last week in the resurrection, the cross, the tomb, the resurrection, because of the, 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 the life of Jesus Christ, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in that, then when God looks at you, he does not see your sins. They are separated from you. Again, as far as the east is from the west, they are, they are separated from you. And so when God looks at you, he sees you as perfect. You are the righteousness of God. Not because you are perfect, not because you don't make mistakes, but because Jesus was perfect. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you get credit for Jesus's life because he took credit for your life. This is what it means when it says you are the righteousness of God. And if we don't know this, and if we don't believe this or understand this, then we can really get messed up thinking about who God is and how he feels about us and how he responds to us and what he wants to do to us. And is he getting us back? Is he paying us back? I talk to people all the time when they find out I'm a pastor or we have spiritual conversations that their, their words are just kind of drenched in this idea of revenge from God or retaliation from God and They don't actually believe that they are the righteousness of God. That when God sees them, he sees them as as sinless, as sinless. And I'm telling you all that because as we get into our story today, we're going to get to see two sides of God. The Bible says that Jesus is, it shows us what God is like. That if we want to know what God is like, we look at, we look at Jesus because Jesus is God uh, in, with skin on in human form. And so if we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus. Jesus shows us what God is like. And in these stories today, we're going to get to see what God is like. We're going to get to see two very different characteristics, two different distinctions of what God is like. This is not all that God is like, but it is two ways, two sides of God that we get to see. One is him at a party, and the other is him at church. We're going to get to see what God is like at Thunder, and we're going to get to see what God is like at Hope City on Sunday morning in some senses, right? And what we're going to find is this, this grace and truth of Jesus. John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that when he came, he came Uh, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth, that he's all grace, he's all truth. You put it together, you get Jesus, which we have trouble wrapping our minds around. But it's kind of like the other day, uh, my oldest daughter, Sadie, who loves when I talk about her in my sermons, um, (laughs) she's getting ready to start high school next year. And you hear me talk a lot about sports. Sadie's great at soccer. She loves soccer, and I love to be a soccer dad, you know, and, uh, and so she started conditioning for the high school soccer team, and um, she plays in some other teams and stuff like that, and so she, you know, one of her goals is she wants to make the varsity team as a freshman. That's what, you know, there's a few spots available, and she wants to try to make those, uh, make the varsity team, and so we were talking about it, you know, and she was bringing it up, and so 
I said to her, because I'm always just trying to, you know, I, she's 13, so you know how it is if you've ever raised a teenage daughter, especially, but teenager general, you're always kind of seeing where you are and, you know, what's, you know, where am I at in this? And, and I said to her, I said, Sadie, I need to know what role you want me to play. Do you want me to be your cheerleader or do you want me to, to push you? Because just let me know, because like, I don't want to push you if you're thinking I need to be the cheerleader, but I don't want to be the cheerleader if you want me to push you. So you just let me know what role you want me to play. She's like, this is serious, dad. I want you to push me. I was like, okay, well, I just, yeah, I just wanted to know. And so, you know, I, because she, you know, she doesn't push. So it's like, okay, I want to, you know, hey, have you done your workout today? Have you, have you done your, 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 you know, have you ran today? Have you done, you know, what the coach asked you to do? No, I haven't done it yet. Well, you said you're going to do it. So I just want to make sure you do it because you asked me to push you. But if you want to be the cheerleader, it's like, have you done your workout? No, let's go get ice cream. That's great because I'm proud of you and I don't care. You're great. You're the greatest kid ever. It doesn't matter if you practice, you're phenomenal, Right? And I just need to know what role you want me to play. Because I can do both. I just want to make sure I'm playing the right role as a dad. That's parenting advice for anybody in the room right there. Just tell me what role you want me to play, right? Well, as a a dad, as a human, as a sinful person, it is not possible for me to be the right amount of anything at every given time with my kid. If she asks me to push her, I'm going to push her too far because I'm a sinner. If she asks me to be her cheerleader, I'm going to enable her to not be at her best because she asked me to be her cheerleader. I'm never going to be the appropriate amount at all times. I give you that example because Jesus, it says, is full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth, which means it's not a balance of grace and truth. It's full of grace and truth, which means Jesus is the only person that we can look to as an example that is always, every time, exactly what we need him to be in our life. When we need him to be like grace, because we're beating ourselves up, he's the perfect amount of grace. And when we need him to be truth, because we're like, ah, whatever, he's the perfect amount of truth. And as you read through the Gospels and you come on these different stories about, you know, where he's dealing with the religious leaders, you're like, man, that seems a little bit mean, but he's the perfect amount of truth. And then he shows up to the woman at the well or the woman caught in adultery or Peter after he has, uh, you know, denied Christ. And you're like, wow, it seems like he kind of let him off the hook there. Well, it's the perfect amount of grace. Jesus showed up in every situation knowing, do I need to be cheerleader or do I need to push? Do I need to be cheerleader or do I need to push? And that brings us to our scripture today that Greg read for us, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, where we get to see two very distinct characteristics or qualities of God. We get to see Jesus at a party and we get to see Jesus in the temple. And so what I want to do is I just want to look at both of these stories. I want to give you a few little details because... It's not exactly what it appears, but it's a lot of what it appears. It's not exactly what it appears. And so I want to look at both stories and see how this applies to our life as we're trying to follow Jesus. All right, so let's look at the first one. The first miracle that Jesus did is he turned water to wine. This is the first recorded miracle Jesus ever performed. First recorded miracle Jesus ever performed. And I love that for so many reasons. I love that the first recorded miracle or the first miraculous act of Jesus was to provide wine for a wedding reception. I love that. I love that because it just is not at all what we would assume he would do. Maybe it's not what we would do. It wouldn't be our strategy if we were trying to kind of come on the scene as a strong religious leader. 
But this story has absolutely nothing to do with wine or alcohol or anything like that, so don't get caught up on that. If you've ever planned a wedding, you know the pressure you feel to get everything exactly right, right? Or a party or, you know, whatever it is. And so imagine how you would feel if you got to the reception and found out that you ran out of food or you ran out of drinks. Or if you were at Thunder yesterday at like 1.30, you're out of everything. You're like, oh, we've got to sit here for a long time. Well, that times 100 is the pressure that they felt for a wedding celebration in Bible times because without rabbit trailing too much, the ancient Jewish wedding tradition uh, was that celebrations would last potentially up to seven days. They would last potentially for a week. And there wasn't a lot going on during that time, you know, normally. And so a wedding celebration was kind of the epicenter of the town, of the city. For seven days, you would come together. It was kind of a highlight moment for for everyone to, to enjoy and to kind of leave maybe a life that wasn't as exciting as the wedding celebration. And the quality of the wedding celebration said a lot about the reputation of the family that was throwing the wedding. And so if you were to run out of the things that you needed for the party, but especially the wine, then this would be extremely embarrassing, but not just embarrassing, humiliating. You would be the family who doesn't know how to throw a wedding or didn't have enough to get what you needed to get. So this is the setting that Jesus finds himself in for his first miraculous act. I don't know where you are religiously or what your story is. I don't know how you feel about Jesus, but as I read this story, there are so many things that kind of just come off the page to me that I love about Jesus. Not the point of the message exactly, but I just jotted down a few things about this story that make me love Jesus even more. Just love Jesus. I love that Jesus attends parties. I don't know how you were raised, but I I don't know that I got the idea because in our denomination, you definitely didn't share the story about the wine. So that way I was to the side. But other than that, I didn't know, you know, we don't, I didn't know Jesus attended parties like that. We didn't, you know, and we, you know, didn't dance or, you know, do anything like that. And, 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 and so I didn't really grasp the idea that Jesus would want to be at a party or host a dinner party. He did that a lot as well. I kind of got the idea potentially that maybe Jesus was too important. Maybe Jesus was too spiritual or busy to not, you know, do anything fun. But it's not true. As you read through the Gospels, here's what you're going to find, that Jesus spent a lot of time with people wherever the people were hanging out. He'd have probably been at Thunder yesterday or, you know, he'd get to the game a couple hours early. If that's where the people were going to be, that's where Jesus was going uh, to be. Spent a lot of time on boats, spent a lot of time at the lake, always living on purpose. He wasn't too spiritual to be likable or to have a good time because he wanted to be where the people are. I love that about Jesus. I love that Jesus is at a party. I love, I'll tell you another thing I love about Jesus is, in this story is I love that Jesus was willing to, to kind of do what he didn't want to do. I mean, if you read the story, you see Jesus' mom comes to him, and he's like, uh, not yet. But he did it. I love that Jesus was, was honoring and obedient to his mom and dad. I love that. That's getting more important to me as I get older. <laughs> uh, I, I, I love that 
He was God. You know, Philippians 2 says that though he was God, he did not view being God as something to kind of be proud about, but he set that aside to be a servant. And so even the son of God was like, well, I'm not really supposed to be doing this, but if mom, if you want me to do it, I'll do it. He wasn't so spiritual that he didn't respect and honor and obey his parents. Love that. I love that he wasn't so spiritual Here's another thing, that, that he, wasn't, he, he was willing to save someone from shame and embarrassment. He, they, did, they came and asked him, you know, to help, and he didn't say, well, that's not my fault. I mean, if they didn't plan accordingly, then that's their problem. They need to do better planning. He didn't wag his finger in their face and say, you know, more responsible people wouldn't need a bailout. He's like, okay. He wasn't so spiritual that he wasn't willing to, to be helpful I love that Jesus was just willing to be available, to be helpful. And so I want you to just stop for a moment and consider how this story makes you feel about about Jesus. How does this story make you feel uh, about Jesus? When you think about this guy, this type of person, the kind of person who would who would hang out at a party, the kind of person who would use his first miraculous act to help someone out, who would honor and respect his parents, just do something because he's asked, be at those types of places. How does that make you feel uh, about, about Jesus? This sounds a little bit like cheerleader Jesus, doesn't it? Let's go get ice cream, Jesus. This is kind of what it sounds like. He sounds amazing. Who wouldn't want a relationship with this guy? We're gonna come back to this story in just a moment because there's a little more I want to say about it, but let's go ahead and I just want to, I want to read the next story or look at the next story that Greg read to us and then pull them together. So Jesus leaves the wedding reception. He goes and hangs out with his family for a little bit. And then it's almost Passover. And so he goes to the temple and the Bible says that he doesn't like what he sees. And so he makes a whip. It specifically says that, that he made a whip. And he went in and he used that whip. And, and he wasn't near as much fun as he was in the other story. This story is dramatically different, right? Jesus doesn't throw a party. He shuts a party down. He's upset. Like he's angry. And he's not upset because people are selling things, because this was actually a necessary thing for people who were traveling a long distance to get to the temple at the Passover. All of the Jewish or Hebrew people had to come, no matter where, how far away they lived, they had to come. So they had to bring their sacrifice. But if they had a really long trip, instead of bringing their sacrifice, they would bring their money, and then they would buy their sacrifice. It was just a little more pragmatic. And so the problem was not that they were selling things. This was actually a service that the temple provided that was a pretty, pretty helpful thing. Jesus was upset because people were being taken advantage of. He, he was upset because religion was being used for personal gain, to take advantage of people. And I, and I just want to kind of emphasize this point that Jesus did not make a whip because of, you know, Sinners doing sinful things. He didn't make a whip for the woman caught in adultery. 
He didn't make a whip for the woman with six husbands. He didn't make a whip for Peter who denied Jesus. He didn't make a whip for the lepers. He didn't make a whip for the man paralyzed. He didn't make a whip for the woman with the issue of blood. He didn't make a whip for people with a lack of faith. He didn't do that. He he made a whip to prove a point to religious people who were using religion to take advantage of people. This was a righteous anger. Righteous anger. And so I've never made a whip before, uh, but I'm assuming it takes a little bit of time. And he, he makes it. He takes the time to make it. And he goes into the temple and he is aggressive in cleaning up what he feels like is wrong. Now remember what we said at the beginning, that Jesus shows us what God is like. So if we take these two stories and we put them together, we see two very different sides of God, two distinct characteristics of God. We see that he makes wine and whips. Jesus makes wine and whips. I love that these stories are back to back. I love that the first thing that we see in Jesus as public ministry is these back-to-back stories of wine and whips because it keeps me from boxing Jesus into one category that I really like and avoiding the other category that I don't like at all, which is what we all tend to do. In the first story, Jesus is likable and he's fun and he's helpful. And if you only read verses 1 through 12, Jesus appears to be the kind of guy, you know, like they're the parent who says, it's cool, everybody come over here and get drunk, just give me your car keys. That sounds like this Jesus, right? I'll provide the beer, everybody just sleep over here. I'm cool parent guy, everybody like me. It sounds like this is the Jesus we're dealing with. But then in the second story, Jesus is angry and violent. He kicks people out of the church, And if you only read verses 13 through 17, it appears like he's a tyrant. He's a control freak, highly opinionated, power hungry. But the reality is, is that the essence of both stories, both things are true. That Jesus is fun and he has standards. Jesus bails us out, but sometimes he kicks us out. He does what we ask sometimes, and then other times he refuses to budge. He is full of grace and truth. He is our biggest cheerleader, but he will also push us. And in my experience, people are typically more comfortable with one version or the other. This is why I said what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Depending on how you were raised or your life experiences, you either think of Jesus as a tyrant, you know, someone who's angry with you, or you think of Jesus as your homeboy. He's cool, we're cool, whatever. And so based on your view of God, you either live in fear or you're filled with guilt. You're desperately trying not to upset God. Or you take advantage of grace and you live with very little little reverence or or fear of God. And I would be curious to know which version of God you relate to the most. In my experience, most people 
have more of a hard line negative view of God. But I think it is changing, you know, over a little bit of time. I think there is maybe a little less reverence for God and this idea that, you know, whatever goes, no big deal. God is love, however we define it or whatever. And so it's, it's possible that maybe you, you, you view God that way. If you go back to the first story, we're going to wrap this up in just a second. But if you go back to the first story, there's a really interesting little detail in the story that doesn't show up when you just read it. But it's the way that Jesus did what he did. It's really, it's fascinating that when they came to Jesus and they said, hey, turn the water into wine, Jesus looked around and he, he had them take these containers and go take them and fill them up with water and then he turned the water into wine. If you do a little bit of research, here's what you find. Is you find that most likely, most likely, that the containers that, that he told the people to use were these 20 to 30 gallon containers that were used for what we would kind of define as baptism. Now, that's not really exactly what it was, but it would be the closest relation of what we could find. And so when someone needed to be purified or washed of their sins, they would use these 20 to 30 gallon containers to to purify or to baptize or to wash someone clean of their sins. But we know that before Jesus that it, it didn't stick, like there wasn't, that wasn't enough. Like there was always, they always had to keep coming back and coming back and coming back and coming back and coming back. And so maybe nobody noticed or maybe they did. But I think it's so amazing that Jesus did his first miracle and in kind of this symbolic way or this metaphoric way, he was sending this message to say, hey, look, something better than what you've always known is here. Like these containers represent showing up and confessing, showing up and feeling sorry, showing up and feeling guilty, showing up and having to be cleaned again and again and again and again and again. The water that normally goes in these containers, you know, is is a reminder of your life that you're not proud of. And however Jesus did it, how Jesus would do it, he, he, he makes the water into wine and they begin serving it out of these. In some way, this kind of metaphor, this symbol that says you're about to taste something better than you've ever tasted before. You're about to experience something that you've ever experienced before. And so then they take it to the, um, to the, to the host and then or they, they take it and then they come to the host and they say, you know, party planning 101 right here. Hey, you, most people give you the best stuff, get you liquored up, and then they give you the bad stuff and nobody can tell. But you've saved the best for last. Again, Jesus, in this miracle that seems to be just about laid back Jesus being fun and cool, is doing something so much more significant. He's saying that everything in your life up to this point has overpromised and underdelivered. Everything in your life has set you up to be impressive in the beginning but fail you in the end. Everything that you've ever experienced was great until it wasn't. But Jesus, but Jesus gets better and better and better and better. He saves the best for last. This water that represents the guilt that you always feel in your life is now wine. 
and the way that you think the life, your life works or the cynical view that you have of life or everybody telling you how great it is or how sin convinces you that something's gonna be great initially, but then it always seems to let you down. Jesus was just saying, here I am. It's better than you ever thought it could be. It will not disappoint you. It's gonna blow you away. And so we have these these two distinct characteristics of God. We We have a God who makes wine and he makes whips. And the truth is we need both in our life. That there are these seasons where I need God to come into my soul and turn over some tables because my sinful nature has figured out how to manipulate my spirituality and my faith to just always get me what I want but never inconvenience me. If I serve God long enough without him turning over tables, I get to the point where God always agrees with me but never asks me to change my views. I'm always offended but never needing to apologize. And there are these seasons where I need God to come into my life with a whip and to turn over some tables and to say, this is not how it's going to be. This is not what my house is. This is not what a relationship with me is. But then a lot of times there are these seasons where I'm convinced that God has a whip ready to come at me. And really what he wants me to do is to taste of how good he is, to be reminded that he saves the best for last, to be reminded that it's getting better and better and better, to experience the joy of a relationship with him, to understand that he wants to spend time with me. He wants to hang out with me. He wants to have fun with me. Cheerleader and push, truth and grace. I'm gonna end with this story. I've, sh- I've shared this before, but it's one of my favorite. Chuck Swindoll, Pastor Chuck Swindoll, tells this story about the day he got his permit and his dad tossed him the keys to his dad's pride and joy Cadillac. This was a long time ago. But his dad said to his son, here, son, you can have the car for two hours to go drive it and go have some fun. And so Swindoll says that he got in the car with a full tank of gas, feeling as grown up and as free as he had ever felt before. So he gets in the car and he backs out of the driveway and he's thinking about going and maybe picking up his friends or going to a stretch where he could see how fast he could get the car and drive it. And so he thought, what do I want to do? How do I want to spend these two hours? And he drove around the block once or twice. And then he pulled back into the driveway and he walked inside and he gave his dad his keys. And he said, thanks, dad, but that's okay. And Swindoll tells this story that he loved his dad so much and he knew how much his dad loved the car that the thought of doing anything to mess up that Cadillac overtook his thoughts for craziness or doing something chaotic or dangerous. And so he walked in and he, he gave the keys back to his dad because he knew how much his dad loved the car. 
It's a story about the power of grace. The power of grace says you are free to do whatever you want. You've got the keys. You put your faith in Jesus, you are free. You go do whatever you want to do. You can wreck the car if you want to. You will still be his son or daughter. You cannot mess it up. That's the power of grace. But the power of truth is knowing that God gave you his best in Jesus. You don't want to play fast and loose with God's most prized possession. So if you want to go wreck it, go wreck it. But the more you realize how much God loved his son and loved you, that he would give up his son so that you could have a relationship with him, the more you want to live your life to honor him. And so what I've learned in my life is that when I start believing that Jesus is angry with me, I have forgotten that I'm his son and I have the keys to the car. And when I'm struggling for motivation to, to, to live my best God-honoring life, I've forgotten how much the car means to him. And so I love that I serve a God who is both my biggest cheerleader and a God who pushes me. And I don't want to ever get stuck on one side or the other, and I don't want you to. And so I'm going to pray for us, and maybe you're here today, and you would say, you know what, Jason, if I was just being honest, I need God to come in and turn over some tables in my life. There are some habits that are becoming maybe addictions, or there are some areas where I set up some boundaries in my life, and those boundaries are, don't exist anymore. Or, you know what, I, I can't remember the last time that um, I made a commitment to God and I honored it. Or maybe, you were here, maybe you're here and you live under such condemnation and shame and guilt and you're always prefacing every statement or always trying to make sure nobody takes you the wrong way or always trying to make sure God understands your motives or trying to apologize or make good on everything because you're so concerned. My, my prayer for you today is just that you would remember and recognize that Jesus loves you and that grace is available to you and that you are the righteousness of God. And if you screw up your life from today until the day you die, it does not change the way that God feels about you. It'll change the way you feel about yourself, and it'll make your existence pretty miserable, but it doesn't change the way God feels about you. He loves you. He loves you. He's crazy about you. So will you bow your heads with me? I'm going to pray, and then we'll have an opportunity to take communion and worship together. God, I thank you that you make wine and whips. I thank you that you are not one or the other, that you don't placate to my carefree side or double down on my religious legalistic side. You're both exactly what I need every single time I need it. And so God, I pray for every person in the room right now who's living under guilt and shame that they would remember that you, you turn water to wine. that you want to be with us in life's most joyous moments. And God, I pray for everybody here who is maybe taking advantage of you in some way. Maybe they're not living with a fear of God or a reverence of God. Maybe grace is not something that has any weight to it anymore. I pray that, God, you would show up and you would turn over some tables in our life, not because you're angry with us, but because you are passionate for our souls, 
and what you want to do in our lives. Don't let us grow comfortable either way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.